thank you for returning tonight. We are finally getting around to our sermon on heaven, or our first part of our sermon on heaven. We've been working on the end times, the afterlife, the whole study of eschatology, or the last things. And we've gone through understanding prophecy and talked about the millennium, talked about the intermediate state, talked about the second coming, and last time we had available, we talked about the final judgment. Since then, we've had a number of interruptions, and uh, sometimes the lights can't even stay on. So we've had all kinds of problems for a few weeks, but uh, we are ready for the last couple of topics in this big topic, uh, heaven, and in a couple of weeks we'll consider hell. But today we're starting on heaven. Uh, one admonition before we start the lesson or a bit of advice, I guess. Uh, pay attention. Listen carefully, uh, because if you start this and think, okay, another sermon on heaven going to tell us there's no tears and no sorrow and all that, uh, about 20 or 30 minutes into it, you're going to wake up and say, did he really just say that? You're going to be really confused if you don't pay attention to the whole thing. So stay tuned in, and uh, this will not be... Quite the standard sermon on heaven. All right. In America, if you ask people if they're going to heaven or hell, uh, for every one person that says they think they'll probably go to hell, uh, there are 120 people that say they're going to heaven. So, those aren't quite the odds that Jesus gave it, but that's what people think these days. Uh, And I assume that all of us would be in the 120. Uh, percent we think we're going to heaven. What are we expecting of heaven? Let's talk about that just a little bit before we start looking at the Bible. Uh, here's a quote by J.C. Ryle, and some of you have read some of him. He's old time, uh, old time heavy duty scholar. He said the man who's about to sail for Australia or New Zealand as a settler is naturally anxious to know something about his future home, its climate, its employments, its inhabitants, its ways, its customs. All these are subjects of deep interest to him. You are leaving the land of your nativity. You're going to spend the rest of your life in a new hemisphere. It would be strange indeed if you did not desire information about your new abode. Now surely, if we hope to dwell forever in that better country, even a heavenly one, We ought to seek all the knowledge we can get about it. Before we go to our eternal home, we should try to become acquainted with it. Well, that's pretty good advice, but I'm not sure we follow it. Uh, If I gave you a test, if I gave myself a test before I really started studying this topic about what I know about heaven, I didn't know much about heaven. We don't talk much about it. Uh, I read one fellow that's kind of specialized in studying heaven. He said he's collected about 150 old books about heaven, and most of them say uh, the Bible says it's greater than anything we can imagine. So it's going to be really good. And that's about what we seem to think about heaven sometimes. Uh, John Eldridge said this of all the people he talked to, He said, nearly every Christian I've spoken with has some idea that eternity is an unending church service. 
we've settled on an image of the never-ending sing-along in the sky. One great hymn after another, forever and ever, amen. And our heart sinks forever and ever. That's it. That's the good news. And then we sigh and feel guilty that we're not more spiritual. What's heaven going to be like? You know the Gary Larson cartoons, uh, strange little things in his cartoons. He drew a picture of heaven one time, uh, Farside, that's the name of it. And there was a man with angel wings and a halo. He's sitting on a cloud, and he's doing nothing, and nobody's around him. And he's got this expression of somebody that's just bored to death. And his thought balloon says, I wish I'd brought a magazine. Well, we laugh at that kind of thing, but what do we really know about heaven? Mark Twain in The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn had uh, Huck and this Christian old maid, Miss Watson, talking about things, and she didn't like Huck's fun-loving spirit. And Huckleberry Finn said she went on and on and told me all about the good place. She said all a body would have to do there was go around all day long with a harp and sing forever and ever. So I didn't think much of it. Didn't appeal to Huckleberry Finn. Then he said later, I asked her if she reckoned Tom Sawyer would go there, and she said not by a considerable sight. I was glad about that because I wanted him and me to be together. So, where's all this information about heaven come from, or this lack of information? Uh, what do you think about it? And if you're like me, I don't think much about it. And I didn't think much about it. I kind of went back to those old verses. Well, it's going to be really good. It'll be better than you can imagine. And no eyes seen anything like it. No ears heard anything like it. No mind can conceive of anything like it. So it's going to be good. But I, I don't know what to expect or what to look forward to or what to imagine. And we're told to set our imagination on it. We're told to set our minds on heavenly things. We're told that's what the reward is. That's what we're looking forward to. That's, what, that's why we're doing what we're doing. But if we don't have any idea what it is, how well can we do any of that? I think, uh, turn over to Revelation 13, 6. <clears throat> and I, I think maybe this is one reason that we don't think much about heaven or know much about heaven or there's not much information about heaven in any of the books we read or any place. Uh, Revelation 13, verse 6. Um, that'd help if I'd get in Revelation. Okay, the beast, Satan. Uh, I'm going to find it eventually. Okay, uh, the beast, verse 5. He opened his mouth to blaspheme. And what's Satan blaspheme? What's the three things he talks bad about? He talks bad about God and his name, his dwelling place, and those who live in heaven. Okay? That's part of Satan's thing. 
is he tells people wrong things about God. He gets bad information about heaven and about the people who live in heaven. He blasphemes it. Maybe it's worked over the centuries where we just finally admit or think we don't know anything about heaven. Well, I think we can figure out a few things about heaven. For instance, that verse that I just quoted, how many of you are familiar with 1 Corinthians 2, 9? No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived of what God has prepared for those who love him. How many of you are familiar with that? How many of you think that says that there's no way we can know about heaven? That's what I thought it meant. I don't know why I never read verse 10. No eye has seen it, no ears heard it, no mind can conceive it, but his spirits revealed it to us. Huh. There may be some things in the Bible about heaven, about what God has prepared for us. I think there are, and I think we just kind of skip over them, ignore them, come up with rationalizations for them, and leave it at, well, it's a nice spiritual place, and I don't know what we'll do, but it'll be really nice. So let's see if we can figure out a few things about heaven, and we're going to go, my plan is to go real fast, go as far as we can. I'd love to even get both sides done tonight, just introduced, so it's in your head and you can think about it. And then we'll come back next week and fill in a bunch of blanks and answer some other questions. But we may not get that far. We'll see. Uh, first of all, what's heaven mean? We've got to define the word a little bit because we might be thinking of the wrong place. So when you look in the Bible and just look up heaven, here's what you're going to find. Sometimes you're going to find it used in a cosmological sense, the cosmos, uh, Genesis 1.1. God created the heavens and the earth. Okay? What's heaven? And it's used plural and singular, just interchangeably. Uh, what is it? It's everything that isn't the earth. Okay. Cosmologically, we've got the earth and everything else is the heavens. Okay. Secondly, it's used theologically. There's some connection with God and it's got something to do with God when it's used. Uh, the first one is it's used like the divine dimension that's what I call it. It's an equivalent to God. And sometimes, you may have noticed this in your reading or may have confused you sometimes. The Bible talks about things like the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Okay? And it just uses them interchangeably. God and heaven. Doesn't draw any distinction. Heaven's equal to God. God's equal to heaven. John's baptism. Jesus asked people, did John's baptism come from heaven? Or from man. Okay, he didn't say did it come from God. He said did it come from heaven. Okay, so heaven's equal to God. Uh, we sin, Luke fifteen eighteen says. When we sin, we sin against heaven. Well, if heaven's a place, then we can't sin against a place. So in, in these instances where it's used to express just the divine dimension, God basically, it's not a place. It's an equivalent to God. That's not many times, but there's a few. I'm just trying to tell you all the ways heaven is used. Then B2 is the divine throne room. 
that's where the angels dwell. We've talked about it a lot during the second judgment, or the judgment, the second coming, all of that. Uh, the angels dwell there. That's where we're going to spend our intermediate state. It's paradise. It's what I've presented so far in this series. It's what the prophets saw when they got a vision. When Isaiah and Ezekiel and Paul and John got to see heaven, this is what they saw. The divine throne room. Uh, John chapter 4 and verse 1, uh, Revelation 4 and verse 1. John said, I saw heaven and there was a door open. And I went in. And there was a throne. Okay, he was in the divine throne, throne room. He was where God and now Jesus reign. And the angels are there and the disembodied spirits of the saints are there. It's where Jesus went back to. Okay. After his resurrection and his 50 days on earth, uh, that's where he went to. The angel told the people, that, or told the apostles, he's gone back to heaven. Mark 16, 19. He's gone back to heaven, and what's he done? He's on the right hand of God. He's in the divine throne room. He's in heaven. Uh, Stephen, that's where he saw him. Stephen got a vision of the divine throne room, and he saw Jesus standing next to God. Uh, we've talked so much about the intermediate state, I didn't give you any more details there, but that's where I believe the disembodied spirits of the righteous go at death, is into the divine throne room. That's the current heaven, if you will. Third, the Bible talks about a new heaven and a new earth. And I'll admit, for 65 years, I've just kind of dismissed that. Well, we're not going to live on earth. It's going to be destroyed. We're going to heaven. Well, what's heaven like? Well, I don't know, but it's really good. Yeah. Well, the Bible talks pretty clearly about this new heaven and new earth. Much more clearly than I ever paid attention to, if you will believe that or not. There's a whole lot of things I don't pay attention to, evidently. Uh, it's first revealed, uh, the first time I know of in the Bible it's talked about, is in Isaiah 65. And it's very clear. Now, admittedly, it's a prophecy. We've talked about prophetic statements that they're hard to understand. They could be figurative, and some of it could be literal and all of that. But this, most of this prophecy is pretty clear. It's not talking about a new a kingdom in Israel or anything like that. What it says is in Isaiah 65, verse 17, God says, Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and his people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. What's that sound like? That sound like an earthly Jerusalem where the Jews are going to live and there's going to be no crying? No, it's a new heavens and a new earth. It's something new, completely different. And it goes on, you read the rest of the prophecy there, and it talks about death is going to be a thing of the past. It goes on, and I mean, the more you read, the more it sounds like what we call heaven. But God says very specifically, 
it's going to be a new heaven and new earth. Okay? Now go over to Acts 3 and verse 21. Acts 3.21, Peter is speaking to a crowd, and he's talking about Christ and where he is, and he's in heaven and all that. In verse 21, he says, he must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Okay, now there's a, a clue, there's a tip. Peter says Christ is going to stay in heaven, in the current heaven, until God renews, restores everything. It comes time for God to restore everything, and that's what the prophets talked about. Okay. Keep going here, and we'll stack all this up, and like I said, we'll go into more detail next week, but let's just keep putting Bible on here. Second Peter 3. Famous passage. We pay a lot of attention to the first part of it. We tend to skip the last part of it. Second Peter 3. Okay, remember this is about the day of the Lord, when it's going to come and all that. And he said, people say, well, it hadn't happened yet, so it's not going to happen. Uh, verse 8, he said, don't forget, uh, Lord's a day is like a thousand years. Lord's not slow. He's just patient. He's waiting. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come. And this is the part we like. Verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. That gets rid of the present world. Remember we talked about that? At his second coming, after all the dead and wicked and righteous and living and dead of both are off the earth have been caught up to be with Jesus in the sky. Once that has happened, this is when this is going to happen. He's going to destroy everything. Okay? But we hardly ever go on and read verse 13. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Okay? Old one's going to be burned up. Elements are going to melt. But what are we looking for? I, I mean, I just kind of skip that verse and say, well, we're looking forward to a spiritual realm. I don't know what it's going to be like, but it's really good. But Peter didn't say that. Peter said we're looking for a new heaven and a new earth, just like he promised. Oh, did I skip Romans 8? Did I read that, Romans 8? I think I skipped it, didn't I? I told you to pay attention. You're supposed to help me here. I don't know. 
Yeah, Romans 8. We didn't talk about that. Let's go back there. Paul explains something about creation. Now, remember what we've got so far. We've got God saying he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. We've got a picture of him destroying the old. We've got Peter saying we're looking forward to a new. And you see the word they used a couple of times was restore. Christ has got to stay in heaven until God restores everything. Now, look at what Paul talks about. In uh, chapter 8, Romans 8, starting 19, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay, and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. He says we're waiting for heaven, but he also says the creation is waiting it's groaning. It's wanting to get out of its punishment, out of its oppression. What happened to creation? The fall. The curse. Okay? I don't know what Eden was like, but after the fall, they got kicked out of Eden into an earth that had been cursed, and there was such a vast difference that he put armed angels there to keep them out. That means they would have liked to go back. But they were in the cursed earth. Now, we talk about the earth. It's beauty, and there's so many wonderful things. It's cursed, folks. And it's so cursed that it is groaning. It's waiting to get freed from this mess that it's in. And so do we. And he says that. We as individuals want to get out of this old sinful world. We're tired of reading the junk we read in the newspapers and fighting sin and seeing what happens to families destroyed. And all. We want out of it. He says, so does creation. I don't want to make too many illustrations tonight. I just want to look at Bible. But on this one, I feel like I got to uh, C.S. Lewis, Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe and all those books. Uh, if you remember the Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, the, the white witch, who's like Satan, has made the world, if you remember the lion, made the world where it is always winter, but never Christmas. Okay? It's always winter, but never Christmas. The whole world is messed up. It's under her curse. Okay? And the people, the followers of Aslan... The good folks, they want Aslan to come back so they can be freed. But they also want Aslan to come so the world can be free. So it doesn't have to be all-time winter anymore. Okay? That's not what the world was supposed to be like. But the witch has put a curse on it. Okay? So it's not just individuals, but it's the whole world Paul says in Romans, that are waiting for this second coming. Wants to be freed. Okay. 
then Second Peter 3 tells when this renewal or recreation is going to take place. Now, one more step, then we'll go back and talk about this a little bit. John's vision. Let's go over to John 21. Once again, we kind of discount anything we find in Revelation because most of it's hard to understand. We just say, ah, it's in Revelation. I don't know what that means for sure. Well, some of it, we don't do that. Some of it, we teach it just like it's flat-out gospel. And I just did that a few weeks ago when I talked about the second judgment, or the judgment. I always called it the second judgment. That's the second coming and the judgment. Uh, we t- I talked about the judgment, and I took most of it right out of here, verse chapter 20. Okay? Because John had a vision of the judgment. It wasn't a, a prophecy. It's in prophetic language in some degrees. But he saw it. He got to see it. Remember, this whole thing started. He saw the door open. He stepped into the throne room. And he got shown all sorts of visions, but he also saw... What's really going to happen? He, I mean, look at chapter 20. We teach almost all of that for straight down the middle line truth. Satan, is he going to be thrown into the fiery lake? Are we going to get rid of Satan? Yeah. That's part of the judgment. Well, that's what John talks about here starting in verse 7. He talks first about Satan being released. We talked about that a little while. Then he talks about being thrown into the fire. Okay. Then he talked about the judgment, starting in verse 11. The great white throne and the books open and the people separated and all of that. We taught all that for truth. So we get through 20 and look at chapter 21. John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Whoa, here to hold it. We got a new heaven and a new earth. We got the holy city, Jerusalem, which stands for all the saints, all the redeemed, they're in the holy city. It's coming down out of heaven. Where's it going? Where's it headed? What's it doing coming out of the current heaven, which is B2, the throne room of God? He sees it coming down out of heaven, heading for somewhere. Well, verse 3 tells us. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear, and all of a sudden we're talking heaven language here. Wipe away every tear and all that. That's our heaven doctrine. But look at those verses in there that we just usually jump right over. Okay? This is about the point where I told you, if you weren't paying attention, you're going to look up and say, did he really just say that? We don't talk about this this way usually. 
I, I don't do it because the shock value. I don't do it because I, I read one little pamphlet and thought, well, that sounds cool. I do it because I finally sat down and tried to study heaven. And I started reading stuff. I thought, I've never thought of this before. And so I got another book and I did another book. And finally I just read the scriptures. And uh, I'm thinking, hold it. Now this, this all fits together. This all works. There's clear statements and prophecies about a new heaven and a new earth. John's vision clearly says that's what he saw. He saw the current heaven. He he knows what's going on there. He's been in there. But after the judgment, he sees a new heaven and a new earth. And he sees the holy city of Jerusalem, the saved, the redeemed, all the people coming out of the current heaven. And he says what that means is that God's dwelling place is now going to be with men on this new heaven and this new earth. And the third thing that convinced me that this all makes sense is to think through the whole process of what was God's original plan. Go back to Genesis. God created man. And what did he create him for? He made him a physical being. He gave him a body. He breathed the spirit into it. And he became a living soul. And he gave him a perfect place to live. Earth. Perfect place. And he would never die. And he got to work in the garden, but it wasn't really work. And and he walked and talked with Adam and Eve every day. It was a heavenly kind of thing. That's what he created man for. And then Satan and man combined to mess it up. And God cursed the earth. Sin was on the earth now. Things went from bad to worse. In fact, things were got so bad once he destroyed the whole place. Or at least reconfigured it because he completely flooded it with water. It's not anything like it used to be. And then we start reading all these prophecies that say God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And it won't have the problems of the old one. The problems we'll talk about are probably going to be next week now before we get to them. But anyway, I put all those things together and I said, okay, this makes sense. This is reasonable. And I try to think of my objections to it because I get 65 years of history that, well, I didn't think that. But that's my only objection is I never thought that before. I don't have any scripture to prove it. And the only thing I can possibly think of is, well, God is spirit. Well, what, what, what did he make man for the first time? He made him for a perfect life, an undying life, a perfect life on a perfect earth with beautiful things all around him to enjoy. And that he could have a relationship with and visit every day and dwell among men. That's what he created the first time. And then when you read what all 
the prophets and the apostles and everybody else, and they use these same words over and over again. He's going to redeem the world. He's going to restore it. He's going to recreate it. He's going to renew it. And I say, this is starting to make sense to me. It's not this spiritual cloud realm with harps and wings. It's a place, a physical place for man to live for eternity with God dwelling with him. Coming out of the new heaven, putting all the new, all the redeemed, the saints on this new place that he's made for them. Let's cover this before we quit tonight. Yeah, but... Peter says he's going to melt the elements. He's going to completely destroy the earth. Okay. Either way, whichever way you want. If he, one way to look at it is, okay, he's going to completely destroy what's here. What's here and the rest of the universe with it. And then he's going to recreate it in some better form. Or... The, the melting of the elements is just like the fire that purges the, the dross out of the gold and stuff. He's just going to melt everything and reform it, renew it. Either way, uh, I personally think the language that he uses and a few other things indicate a renewal, a burning of everything that he wants to burn and rebuild and all that. And I put them down there at the bottom. Peter's word for new, when he says a new heaven and a new earth, it doesn't mean totally different. It's a different kind of new. It's a new in quality. New better. It's like after you restore a car. It looks like a new car. Been restored. It's not a totally different car. That's the word he used. And the, the big kicker for me is Romans 8, 19, 20. It talks about the universe waiting to be liberated. It wants to be freed from this curse. It doesn't want to be recreated or replaced. It wants to be renewed. And then you think through God's whole purpose of redeeming and restoring and all that. It applies to creation, I think, not just sinners. But also, you take the picture of what he did with man... And we've studied through this, and this all makes pretty good sense to us. He created man for this earth. The earth got cursed. With the sin came the death and all of that. And so when we die, our body goes into the grave, and our spirit goes to him. If all he wanted was a spirit in a spiritual place, he's got it. But what's he going to go through? He's going to go through a resurrection. A renewal, a restoration of our bodies. And what's he going to give us? A physical body. Yes, it's spiritual, but it's a body. It's going to be reformed somehow so that it fits in its new environment. He's going to go through that process... To get to what he intended in the first place. That's his plan is to restore what Satan destroyed. 
Write this one down. 1 John 3, 8. What was the reason Jesus came? John says clearly that the reason Jesus came was to destroy the work of Satan. Destroy the work of the devil. What did Satan do? God created man, perfect, never die, all of that, put him in a perfect environment, came and visited him every day. Satan messed it up. Got the whole earth cursed, got man cursed, got sin floating around, causing all kinds of problems. It's a mess. Jesus came to destroy that work. To get back to what God intended or even better than what he intended. Now, when I say a new heavens and a new earth, because we don't have time to go to page two, uh, just let me summarize real quickly what I think. I I think we are going to live on a physical earth. I have no idea how big it will be. I don't know what it will look like. I've got some thoughts that it's probably pretty like Garden of Eden. Well, that's what God started with. That was his, that's the way he designed man to live. Okay. So I think it'll be a lot like that, a pre-fall kind of earth. See, nobody knows how much the earth changed after the fall. Uh, what's left is amazingly beautiful to us. Yeah, when we look at the beauties of this earth and see the mountains and the canyons and the flowers and the animals and all, we just can't believe God made all this. This is the cursed version. Can you imagine what it was before? Not only is it cursed, it's been been wiped out and rearranged and smashed and tumbled with a worldwide flood. Yeah, it's had some time to recover from that, but boy, it had to change things. So I, I think it's going to be physical. I don't know how big it'll be. I think there will be a holy city, Jerusalem, which the only way John could describe it was in things that are just too glorious for us to imagine. And now God will dwell with man on this new earth. Now, what what about the new heavens? I don't know how much they need to be arranged, rearranged, recreated. I know one thing, he's got to get rid of the sun and the moon. So they're going away. So he's got to fix the cosmos somehow. And and since right now the sun is the center of everything and holds things in place, he's going to have to change that somehow. He's going to have to re-engineer it. It's going to be different. But there's no sun and moon because the Lamb and Jehovah are the light. They illumine the whole place. So he's going to have to mess with the cosmos some. I don't know how much, but he's going to renew or recreate, whichever one suits your fancy, the earth. Now, what are we going to do there? Next week we're going to talk about that. Uh, what I did on the second page, and you can read ahead and think through it, and this is just the basics. This is usually just the stuff that the Bible talks about. What's life going to be like? It's going to be glory is the only word to describe it. And if you were at uh, 
Everett Hufford's speech out at the area wide, you got a better take on what glory is than you used to. It's going to be glorious life. It's going to affect the physical, the mental, and the spiritual side of man. So I think it's something to look forward to maybe a lot more than we currently talk about heaven. All right, I'm sure I've created a question or two. I saw not one head nod the whole time. I saw quite a few frowns. And we'll talk some more about it next week. Thank you for being here. If you're here this evening and need to respond to the Lord's invitation, we'd be happy to help you with that or anything you need from this family. Let's uh, stand and sing a song. You come if you need to.